Good evening, everybody. We'll start tonight by setting our motivation. Uh, the teaching tonight is going to be on karma. And um, I'd like to use um, some advice from Geshe Sopa as our motivation. This might be a little long, so he's talking about how difficult this topic is because it's a very subtle topic, cause and effect of karma. And it's beyond, far beyond the understanding of ordinary beings. Um, and that's because the ripening of karma happens in the future and sometimes in future lives, so it's really unknown to us. So this is, can be a very difficult topic, he says, and one that we uh, may need to, well, will need to study for a long time. Um, but it's, he t- goes on to say it's very worthwhile and that as our understanding of this topic deepens, we'll develop gradually a confidence that will help us to incorporate these teachings into our practice and into our life. And so as a motivation for tonight, I'd like to um, wish that all of us here will build up this attitude of trust and how important it is because this is what allows us to um, reach. If our practice isn't built upon that, we can't really reach the highest goals. Without pure ethical conduct, there's no inner spiritual development. But with this kind of development, we can even be in close contact with things that we're quite attached to, our objects of desire, and be completely without any danger because now our actions will be controlled by our mind. And this is the mind that knows that um, the workings of karma. So then we will govern our speech and our actions. Kashi Sopa says that once we understand this relationship, once we understand the nature of ethical conduct, then we'll have to continually make this resolve to restrain our minds over and over again, that we're not going to involve ourselves and not engage in certain um, unwholesome actions, things we've done in the past, and that we have to have a really strong resolve. And without that, we won't have much control over our body and our speech And he explains it in this way. Uncontrolled behavior means that you act under the influence of whatever external conditions you meet without much regard for future consequences. I would say if I look at my experiences during the day, this is definitely at play. In the moment, um, I'm really reactive to things in the external environment. And in that moment, there's not always a regard for what's the future results of my thoughts, my words, and my actions might be. And of course, over time, I have more control over this, but when I watch my mind, I'm like, not so much. But knowing that um, we can, uh, through this kind of determination, we can make progress, 
This is the strongest force, he says, is our own inner mental determination. It's much stronger than anyone trying to restrain us from the outside. And it's something that we have to generate ourselves. So my motivation for um, this evening is for us all to be able to slowly and gradually take these teachings to heart and be able to do just this and um, just lift ourselves out of our habits and uh, all the moments of body, speech, and mind that um, are not serving ourselves or others. And may we do this for our own benefit. May we do this to benefit all that we need. And may we do this all the way to full awakening so that we can benefit all beings. This is a really big topic. It's <laughs> you can't cover, you can only scratch the surface on things in one hour. And I have too much prepared, so we'll see how we do. But um, uh, it's really an interesting topic, and it's really a motivating topic. And so I would just encourage everyone, There's we have all kinds of teachings on this, on the tiptoonchildren.org website. Venable taught during Essence of Refined Gold, three or four times on karma and um, these books by Geshe Sopa have I mean this almost this whole book is about karma volume two of steps on the path and it's really really helpful um, some of his explanation of things are just so clear I wanted to kind of start this topic off by looking at our experience from uh, we often do the, do the meditation mind as the source of happiness and pain and so when we look closely at our experience, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that this verse from the Dhammapada is really underlies the law of karma, so I'd like to start there. All of our experience is preceded by the mind, governed by the mind. If one acts, speaks, or thinks with an unwholesome mind, then suffering will follow, just as the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox that's pulling it. So we know this verse and the reverse of it as well. If we speak or act with a wholesome thought, then happiness will follow, just as a shadow follows wherever one goes. So we're quite familiar with this verse and this uh, meditation that we do on mind as the source of happiness and pain. In the book Taming the Mind, Venerable Children goes into this in some depth and explains that our experience is something we create. We're always thinking it's other people that they're the cause. And we've always kind of then have to remember, oh, they're just the stimulus. But what is the cause? And the cause is our, um, our pretty much our interpretation, our perception and attitudes. And then also the, so our mind there is the interpreter of our of our environment. And, these perceptions that we have, these attitudes. And then the other part that she identifies is that our mind is the creator of our karma. So we delve into karma here. Um, karma literally means action. And these are actions done by sentient beings with intention. 
and these actions relate then to our experience of happiness and suffering. And then when we act, there's what you might say a remnant left from that of maybe you could call it energy, for lack of a better word. We usually call these karmic seeds or latencies. And then these seeds ripen and they influence the body and mind that we'll take in the future. They influence the kind of situations that we encounter. They influence our habitual behavior and our environments that we find ourselves in. And they can be influencing all of our five aggregates, but they especially uh, influence the aggregate of feeling. And so we often say that karma ripens in the feeling aggregate. And this is as our painful, pleasant, and um, neutral feelings. And so you can kind of um, see that in your own experience, how you can have similar things happen, and one day it's pleasant to you, one day it's not. And when we do our retreat this winter on the four establishments of mindfulness, I think it will be really fruitful, because you can just see as you, any of our awareness that we have of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, how we're so reactive to it. We are so reactive to it. It's, you know, just the um, contact goes to feeling, and then poof, we're off and running. And so um, it's very helpful to understand this, because then when we're in meditation, we can pull these things apart, and it's very fruitful and practical. So other things about karma is that some actions bring immediate results, and some bring results later in another lifetime. Some of our actions are weak and are lacking intention and don't bring any results. Some actions um, will um, create our next birth. Some will create the different attributes and experiences of, of the various lives that we have. So there's many ways to discuss karma. I mean, there's just I mean, a lot of ways to look at it, and so we can only um, talk about really some of them. And I want to, kind of, as a starting point, just say, well, one way to look at it is, well, what are the causes of happiness? Because I remember someone was here one time, and we kind of stumbled in answering, and, you know, the practicing virtue, you know, and eliminating non-virtue. And Geshe Sopa says that it's this strong trust that we have and the relationship between cause and effect that is the basis for living a life of virtue and engaging in spiritual training. So if we don't see that, if we think things are random, you know, if we can't make these connections, we won't, there would be no cause, no need for us to work on our ethical conduct because, you know, what's the point? You know, there, you have to really see, uh, see this um, as best you can, which on some level is kind of easy and then other levels is quite difficult. I recently was in the prison and I brought this up and the one person there could not even understand what I was saying that people could have any difficulty with karma. For him, it was just a, non, a no-brainer. You know, it was like, you know, he was so convinced of karma. And so I want to talk with him more and, you know, see what his understanding is and everything, but it was so strong. And there's some level where we have, a, I think, some kind of recognition of this. But then I think in the moment, in the moment when we're not uh, at our best and things are flying in our mind and the situations, I would say at that moment, uh, we're not too much in touch with the reality of karma, <laughs> I would say, if I look at my mind. 
So the Buddha was very compassionate and he recommended us what things in terms of our ethical conduct to adopt and what to abandon. And, you know, in his own words, he shared it in this way. And I think this is um, quite refreshing to hear the words of the Buddha. He says, if, friends, one who enters and dwells amidst unwholesome states could dwell happily this very life without vexation, despair, and fever, and if with the breakup of the body after death he could expect a good destination, then the Blessed One would not praise the abandoning of unwholesome states, because one who enters and dwells amidst unwholesome states dwells in suffering in this very life with vexation, despair, and fever, and because he can expect a bad destination with the breakup of the body after death. The Blessed One praises the abandoning of unwholesome states. And he does the reverse of this too, praising them the acquisition of wholesome states. And this is what we are very familiar with, is that, you know, in the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, basically went from the results, you know, he saw what led to suffering, what led to happiness and worked way worked his way back by seeing previous lives of himself and of others and so it's basically like what his holiness had said, you know, if if these things didn't matter, then let's just go get drunk. You know, no problem. But these things do matter. They do matter tremendously. In fact, this uh, precious human life that we have is gonna be the basis for our continued Dharma practice. And in order for that to happen, we have to observe the law of karma and its result. And so you could just actually go through most of the teachings, you know, and the different states that we may have and the different actions we may do, and you could ask, well, what are the cause of all of these? So we've learned the causes of a precious human life. We've learned the causes of a, of a life and a happy existence, right? So remember, a precious human life, it was the, doing, avoiding the ten non-virtues, that gets you into the upper realms, right? And then practicing the six far-reaching practices or perfections, six perfections, and then making these strong prayers of aspiration. So by avoiding the ten non-virtues, you cast, you can have the potential to cast yourself into a favorable rebirth, an upper rebirth. And then by practicing these three aspects, you can help to ensure a precious human life. So this is not something that the Buddha made up. It's not something he created. It's just something that the Buddha described, this law of karma. And this law of karma and its results is a specific type of what's called general causality or the general um, law of general law of causality. Yeah, general law of causality. And I'd like to spend some time on this because as Westerners, I think this is quite beneficial to us. So this general law of causality is basically the fact that all changing phenomena arise from preceding causes and conditions, and they do not arise if any of these causes and conditions are absent. So for a tree to grow, it needs the seed. The seed is the substantial cause. But that's not enough to produce a tree. You also need the cooperative conditions, the water, the fertilizer, the sunshine. And then also the effects have to be concordant with their causes. So the particular causes have to have the ability to produce those particular effects. Not everyone believes this. You know, we've been learning about the different schools and everything. 
But it's basically that if you have an apple seed and you plant it, you're not going to get a pickle. <laughs> you know, you're going to get an apple tree. You know, you have to have they have to be concordant. So these are basic premises of the uh, of the general law of phenomena. So this is a natural law that of the universe, and it describes how things are produced and how they bear results. So another way to say this is that because things depend on causes and conditions, they change. If something is a changing phenomena, causes and conditions necessarily produce it. But then within that general law, um, in the Pali commentaries, they speak of this in terms of five types of causality, five orders of causality, which are called niyama. And each of these has its own sphere of operation, and they've they function somewhat on their own, but they also interrelate completely. They, they're not unrelated to each other. There's like an interplay where they influence each other. So um, we've talked about this here before some. The first one is what is called uta niyama, the order of temperature is the translation. And this is basically inorganic physical causality, like what we see in physics and astronomy, inorganic processes inorganic causal processes. These are without the influence of life, mind, or volition. So purely physical inorganic processes like maybe earthquakes or cyclones would be really dramatic things and on a small level the electrons going around that nucleus of an atom and molecular reactions, inorganic ones, things like that. So that's the first. The second is this biological causality, the, the bija niyama, the order of the order of seeds. So these are now organic processes, and they also don't involve mind or volition. And this is in the text. It says if you plant orange seeds, you get orange trees. If you plant apple seeds, you get apple trees. So this, in a modern version, we might think of things like our biological understandings, genetic transmission, the traits of organisms due to genes and gene expression, things like that. So there's that happening. And then there's psychological causality, which is called sitanyama, the order of the mind. And this is the kind of causation that takes place between different acts of consciousness or different mental events. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, it's the order holding sway over the mind and mental processes. And so this is uh, things that occur in the process of cognition. And so uh, some example, an example of this might be when you see a form, there's first a kind of consciousness that averts the mind to that form through the eye. And then the eye is really kind of acting like a camera, just kind of seeing it. And then there will be a series of acts of consciousness that close in on the form and focus on it more make it more available to the mind, then there might be a response to it, then there might be um, some kind of acts of mind that help you to put it into memory, things like that. So these are, you know, kind of, I always think of this as kind of like how we're wired. There's a lot of functionings that just happen. This is how our cognitive processes work. You know, and I think it comes a little bit based on the the structure that you probably have you know, slightly different organisms will have different ways that things might work like this. So now we get up to the fourth of the fifth of the five types, and that is karmic causality, the order of kama niyama. So this is now talking about 
acts of volition and the effects that occur as a result of these acts of volition. So that is this idea that there's an ethical dimension to our actions. And this is also considered to be a natural process and it functions whether or not a person believes in it. And here's where we see a lot of mistaken views and usages of the word karma. And Bhikkhu Bodhi brings up this one. He says it's popular to equate karma with cause and effect. And he thinks that's maybe to make it kind of more intelligible to Westerners who are skeptical. But he says, so people will say, what is karma? Karma means the law of cause and effect. That for anything to occur, there has to be a cause. And that the cause occurs, when the cause occurs, the effect will occur. And that's what's meant by karma. And he says, that's not correct. That's not, we're talking about what karma refers to is that there's an ethical dimension to our actions. So that's, that's not really a correct explanation. And then His Holiness says sometimes people say karma in a really flippant way, like when they don't know really, they're actually saying, I don't know. But they'll just say, why did something happen? Oh, it's karma. <laughs> you know, and I've heard, we've, I've heard, seen examples of all of these. And then he also says that sometimes when unfortunate things happen to people, people will say, oh, it's karma, and then they'll kind of deny any responsibility for something. And that's also kind of an improper way to use it because uh, karma really, if anything, it doesn't get rid of your responsibility. It makes you completely responsible. You can't just wash things off. So I think it's important that we you know, get real clear on what is karma, and it's a particular type of causation. So this is where these acts of consciousness, volition is the dominant element here. So it's a relationship between acts of volition and the effects that occur because of those acts of volition. And these effects are going to be morally or ethically aligned with the, with what produced them. So this isn't something that's immediately evident to us. It's not something that we can see. We know this more in the sense of the boomerang, like what goes around comes around. And it's, it's true like that, that an unwholesome volition will bounce back upon the one who gives rise to that and you'll experience pain and suffering. And wholesome actions are just the same. The, the wholesome karmic actions that we do, they'll bounce back. And the, the, what you get is really attuned to what you created. But it doesn't mean that this thing is going to happen in the next day. And this is where Bhikkhu Bodhi says some of the things like, like say you do some unwholesome action and you think you're, um, you start to feel upset about it or miserable about it later that day or the next day. Or if you do something, some good action, you think you're going to be happy right away or joyful immediately in the next few hours. He's saying those aren't necessarily what Car- this is talking about. He thinks that more relates to the, um, the sita and yama, how the mind functions. So, so I think that has some I think that's kind of good to think about so if you do an unwholesome action it doesn't mean that if you do an unwholesome action you're going to feel upset or miserable about it 
the suffering will come later, can come later. But it's not like it's so connected that way. This is, I think, where the difficulty lies, is because we can't, <laughs> we're impatient. Kind of. I mean, why aren't we content to create the causes? Okay, so when we do these actions, then you know the seeds are deposited, so to speak, and then we get some kind of result that relates to the ethical quality of the original action. So that's the law of karma. And then there's a fifth type of causality, which is the dhamma niyama, the order of dharmic causation. And this one, um, I would like to just say a little about it. Um, this is the explanation for wondrous events that take place in the life of a bodhisattva during his last existence when he attains Buddhahood. So it says that at the birth of a bodhisattva, when he achieves enlightenment, when he turns the wheel of Dharma, when he passes away, when the Buddha passes away, a great light appears in the world, and the world system shakes, quakes, and trembles. So these kind of events are the things that you usually find in the scriptures about this dharmic causality, causation. But Bhikkhu Bodhi, who knows the Pali Canon, and this explanation I'm giving is from the Pali commentaries, he knows the Canon quite well. He found things that he thinks there's some other things that could be... Uh, he found another, some other sutra that, sutra that explained the process of development in the Dharma to occur in accordance with the nature of dharma. And so he, he explained it like this. For one of wholesome types of behavior, no effort has to be made. Let my mind be free from regret. Now, I guess this is the actual sutta. For one of wholesome types of behavior, no effort has to be made. Let my mind be free from regret. It's because of the nature of dharma that one whose behavior is wholesome whose ways of conduct are wholesome, will be free from regret. We experience that when we do our posada. Don't you notice that? The verse brings that up. It talks about this in our posada, that when you've, when you've not broken things and you sit here and you hear, do the posada, how your mind is so free of regret. For one, free from regret, no effort has to be made. Let me experience joy. It occurs in accordance with dharma, with dhamma, that one whose mind is free from regret experiences joy. I think I experience that when we do our posada, because we do this confession, and we've, we've kind of, we're like starting afresh, and you know, making things right, and yeah, definitely. So he, he for him. Uh, he he believes that this is also um, in this category of dharmic causation. So that gives us kind of the context of the general law of causality and where karma fits into it, because we, we have many discussions around this because of our scientific background. And I think that uh, one time when Venerable was teaching on the four establishments of mindfulness, she gave a different perspective on this, what might come from Tantra. And... Um, it might, there might be other relationships that are seen that when they talk about the interplay of these things, how, how that's understood. I think, like in everything in Buddhism, I think there's probably different views about how all these things connect. But it gives us kind of a starting point because it explains things like the examples that we often hear of like 
sometimes people say, well, the tsunami happened, that's karma. Well, actually, no, it's the, you, what the person experiencing there is why they had their experience there is more related to karma. The, the tsunami happened because of the physical processes of weather and things like that, whatever causes a tsunami. Why you were there and had the experience that you had is more related to the karmic causality. And we, we get these things conflated a lot. But there are probably some other explanations on this. But taken from this viewpoint, that's uh, something to, I think, discern. Okay, so now uh, we're going to go into the general characteristics of karma, which we yeah, haven't... Uh, even brought up in general yet. So karma has four general characteristics. And this is the basic framework that we understand karma. These four things. Karma is definite. It's expandable. We won't experience an effect of an action that we haven't done. And karma doesn't get lost or vanish. So karma is definite. And this is that happiness arises or comes or is the from positive, wholesome virtuous actions. It never occurs the other way around. Suffering comes from negative actions or unwholesome actions. It never occurs the other way around. But these actions aren't inherently good or bad. They're only labeled in relationship to the results. That the Buddha designated things virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral in relation to the results. That's like the, the sutta that I read earlier. He went from the results. What leads to suffering? bad things. What leads to happiness? Good things, but there's nothing inherently good or bad about them. So there's where we get the term virtuous karma. Because a lot of these terms, if we don't know them clearly, then when we get it, when you get into the harder, more complicated issues, you have to know the terms or it gets really hard to understand them. But once you know them, like, all these things fall into place. Especially like talking about like the 12 links and you know what projects rebirth and things like that. So virtuous karma leads to happiness. Non-virtuous karma leads to suffering. Neutral karma, I don't know. Neither. Actually, I think I read that today. Yeah, it's kind of neither. But don't take my word on that because there's a lot of detail to this. Okay, the second point is that karma is expandable small action can bring a large effect. And this is how we keep ourselves from being complacent, is when we think about this. So the smallest little thing that we might do can have huge ramifications, huge results. And sometimes we'll just kind of, oh, it doesn't matter. But this verse kind of puts it in a uh, perspective. Do not think that the commission of even a tiny negativity will not pursue you. Just as a large vessel is filled by falling drops of water, so too a fool is filled up with negativities accumulated a little at a time. (laughs) That's true. Do not think that the cultivation of even a tiny virtue will not pursue you. Just as a large pot is filled by falling drops of water, so too are the steadfast filled up by virtues accumulated a little at a time. And that's from the 
Madonna, Barbara. I think that's, that rings true. Okay, the third thing is that we won't experience an effect of an action that we haven't done. So if you haven't created the cause, you aren't going to get the result. So if we don't create the causes to become enlightened, it's not just going to show up on our doorstep. Or if we have, uh, like when everybody got sick around here, we have to have created the cause to have gotten the cold. So that's where we hear these stories that uh, about people who, they don't meet with the effects because they haven't done the cause. And so you hear these stories of like, you know, 9-11 and all these people who, you know, didn't have problems because they, they just didn't have the causes in place. Or what Venerable Jindi has made me realize is sometimes when I'm kind of like beating my head against the wall with frustration, it's more like, you know, she just reminds me usually that you know, you just don't have the karma for this right now. You haven't really created all the causes and conditions. So it's much better to try to be content with creating causes. It's not very easy to do that, but these kind of studies help. And then the fourth point is that karma doesn't get lost or vanish. So it just, it we will experience an effect of an action unless we, uh, of, unless we counteract it. So these events uh, or results aren't really predetermined. There are many contributing causes. It's a, it's a dependent arising. And that's why we won't know the future until it comes. So we can um, inhibit destructive karmic actions from ripening by doing the four opponent powers. And we can actually destroy or diminish constructive actions, these karmic seeds, by having anger or wrong views. So, you know, it's not like these things are set in stone. We need to be aware that um, when we've done something quite virtuous, it can be destroyed. Then uh, the next topic is the specific characteristics of karma. So once you get a sense of the, these general principles, then you might think to yourself, well, how do we put this into practice? Like, what do we need to avoid? And what do we need to cultivate? And the Buddha, um, although he didn't, not every action is, is subsumed by these ten, he, came, he described the ten physical, verbal, and mental actions that we know as the ten non-virtues, the ten constructive actions. And these ten, he, uh, it said that were the most important and powerful and the easiest ones to occur and the ones that bring the heaviest karmic results. So we're going to talk a little bit about the ten non-virtues, which we oftentimes call the ten non-virtuous actions, but I'll kind of get into that later maybe. It's better to call them the ten non-virtues. These are paths of actions. And they are called this pathway, paths of actions or karmic paths because they lead to future rebirths. Many of our actions and many of our thoughts in our life are not strong enough to produce a rebirth. But others are, and they are then called paths of action because they can generate a rebirth in cyclic existence. And so these ten are paths of action. The physical ones are killing, stealing, and unwise sexual behavior the three physical non-virtues. The four verbal non-virtues are lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle talk. 
And these also, these four verbal ones also include communication by writing and by gestures. And then the three mental non-virtues are covetousness, maliciousness, and wrong views. And we spent a long time going through these in our BBCs and know that covetousness isn't just a greedy thought, it's not just a transient thing, but it's actually much more cultivated and developed. Um, You've really schemed (laughs) and really dwelled on something. And maliciousness isn't a passing angry thought, it's something that you've dwelled on and sort of develop a plan. And wrong views isn't really just um, something, you know, where we have a passing confusion or whatever, it's really actively cultivating, sitting down, developing and working out your thoughts. So they're quite uh, developed. But isn't it amazing to think that just our thought processes, these kind of thought processes can generate a rebirth. That kind of blows my mind to think about. Now, the reverse of those are the ten virtuous paths of action, or what we call the ten constructive actions usually. These have a continuous motivation that lacks attachment, anger, and confusion during the different phases of the action, the preparation, the action, and the completion. So when we're doing an action, there's different phases. You know, there's, you prepare something, you do it, it gets completed, things like that. So these constructive actions that help us to propel into you know, higher levels of rebirth, um, they lack this attachment, anger, and confusion during these phases, like pretty much throughout the action. And so when we contemplate these things that are wholesome and unwholesome, they help us to develop wisdom. Then we know what to adopt and what to abandon. And actually most of us here who have spent some time with these notice just, for me, just a whole level of confusion in my life just falling away. You were kind of talking about this the other day. I had this experience from meditating on these daily for, I think, about a year and a half. I just would review them every day and, like, you know, getting the Buddhist worldview really helps. This kind of wisdom about the functioning karma is actually then very useful because we can make wise decisions. We can think about, you know, long-term results of things, not just our short-term results. And we also, it eliminates confusion about not knowing what to do, and it helps to steer our mind towards virtue. So the practice then starts with observing our motivation. All the action starts there. And here Geshe Sopa says that the practice here is to understand the motivation that lies behind your actions of body and speech and make effort to refrain from these ten non-virtuous karmas. What is important here, most important here, is the mental aspect because the mind controls the body and the speech. The determination that grows out of a clear understanding is a form of wisdom. And if your understanding is firm enough to stand up to doubt and confusion, then your body and speech will be easy to control. On the other hand, if your mind is weak, if you have not built up stability and confidence through learning and meditation, it will be difficult to gain control over your physical and verbal actions. So I think this is quite useful advice that he's giving us, you know, we all, you know, struggle with me anyway, not 
having my mind strong enough at times, not, you know, when we say we lose balance and, you know, the different expressions we have for it here, Venable often, well, she has used the expression that her mind is weak. Um, and it's true in that in those moments. We're not, we're not stable with our understandings and our wisdom, and this is what we're lacking here. And it's not like we can't do something about it. We can understand by seeing this in ourselves that we need to develop this kind of wisdom. So these doubts will keep coming up until we get quite far along the path. But how we respond to them, we can move through these things much quicker as we um, continue to work in our practice on these things. So we don't have to have doubt and confusion ruling our lives. They can just be like, oh, here you are again. God, would you just go take a shower or something? <laughs> Leave. You know, so they don't have to be controlling us. And that's, you know, that's where we start to get a sense of freedom from all of this. Okay, so the whole topic of karmic paths, what are why we use don't use the word destructive actions is I could I spent a lot of time on and would like to explain, but I think it's too long for the time that we have. So I'll just try to say one thing that might be helpful and maybe I'll just do a BBC on this, I don't know. But we went over this when Geshe uh Kendrick Jampa Techchok was here. We had a lot of teaching. We had a lot of confusion about it. And then Venerable got really clear on it. And she taught it a few times. And even when I read what she wrote, I was still confused. And then I read Geshe Sopa. I learned something else that was quite helpful. So I'll just say it this way. Um, half of karma has kind of two parts to it. It can be the cause of an intention or the object actualization. So an example would be that, it, well, let me back up. Karma is, is, karma is intention. It's the intentional thought that's driving the action. That's really, I think, the most important point is to understand karma is intention. It's the intentional thought that is driving the action. So the karma of killing is the intention to take another's life. If you don't have the intention to kill, you haven't created the actual karma of killing. So the intention has to be there. It's the intentional thought that's driving the action. But when you get to these, so that is true for the, for the actions of body and speech. But when you get to the three mental ones, the maliciousness, covetousness, maliciousness, and wrong view, those are not, technically speaking, actions. And the reason is, is because they are afflictions. They are a, a mental factor. And a mental factor and a karma are mutually exclusive. They're different things. So the karmic path is a cause of an intentional thought, but it's not the karma. So one way to think about this is quite easy is that intention or karma and the affliction that is obscuring you, the klesha, they're, they're, they're two different things. So the affliction is the mistaken thought that proceeds and gives rise to the intention, which is the karma. So it's the cause or the source of the creator of the karma, but it's not the karma itself. So that's why we have this 
understanding that the, that's why it's a little imp inappropriate to say the ten constructive or destructive actions, because only the first seven are karmas. But they're all paths of action, paths of karma, and that's because they can all lead you, throw you into a rebirth. Well, I did that in a short period of time to do. I actually understand it, kind of. And I didn't get into the harder part. <laughs> the path of karma means either the cause of an intention or its object, meaning its actualization. I actually worked that out here. So the seven non-virtues of body and speech are both karma and karmic paths. Both the intention, the karma, and the object or actualization of that tension, which is the karmic path. It's better to have examples, though. So malice is not an intention itself, but it's the underlying cause for what for the intention that arises. Yeah, let's move on. This is where I say nobody but the Buddha understands in its entirety karma, its infusion, its activity, and the fruit that is obtained. <laughs> this is where we kind of like, okay, we did the best we could with that. On to the next thing. <laughs> But I think that took me a little bit farther forward. Yeah. We have to spend some time with it. I mean, this is like we're, brush, we're taking a paintbrush and just brushing everything through here. So we all have to go back and think about all these things. So now the next thing is, what is a complete action? There's four branches that have to be complete for a complete negative or constructive action to occur. There has to be the object, there has to be the attitude or the intention, there has to be the action and the completion. And then we take the attitude or the intention and we break it up into three parts. We have to discriminate or identify the object, we have to have some mental affliction present, and there has to be a motivation. So we'll do this with a couple examples to you know, make this more understandable. The first one that they always talk about is the action of killing. So the object, or the basis, is a sentient being other than ourself. It can't, suicide is not an act of killing because you've died before the act is complete. <laughs> and it has to be a person who has a mind, uh, someone who feels happiness and pain. So um, even though a rock may fall on your head and kill you, the rock hasn't accumulated any karma because it's not a sentient being. You know what I'm saying? Then there has to be an attitude or an intention that has the three parts. Discrimination, we identify the person that's going to be killed, and we don't confuse that person with someone else. There has to be an affliction, which is quite a complicated area because your affliction present can kind of change as the action is happening, but... Basically, killing could happen out of hatred, out of attachment, out of ignorance. So maybe in a war, it might be hatred. If you really love meat, you might go fishing. And if it's, if it's out of ignorance, you might do something like animal sacrifice. So there has to be an affliction, and then it has to be a motivation, which is the wish to do this for the intention to be complete. And then there has to be the motivation to do the action, so the wish must... Uh, yeah, I said that, sorry. And then there's the action or the performance itself. So this is the doing of it, so it's taking the life of a living being. And there's, then there's the con conclusion. 
And this is that the action of killing occurs when that being dies before us. Well, if you kill yourself, that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> that's what they say. So that's not considered killing. It's not does mean it's karma free. It's just it's not the act, complete action of killing. And then the other one I wanted to go on because I thought it was interesting because we've heard of the one a lot about killing is idle talk. Because <laughs> I learned a lot by reading about this, and I was like, ah. Oh. So the object or the basis is meaningless or purposeless words. Now you got to be a Buddhist to kind of get on with this all. And then at first, you know, I think this is one that we acquire as the years go by. So then there's the attitude or the intention. We discriminate or identify the object. So the discrimination, this is what surprised me, because it's different from a lot of the other ones that we know. Because usually, like, you know, isn't it weird that if you try to kill one person but you kill the wrong person by mistake, it's not a complete act of killing? We always are like, whoa, but wait till you hear this. The discrimination that needs to be accurate with regard to what you the discrimination needs to be accurate with regard to what you are talking about. Okay, so you have to be accurate. But it's not necessarily to have in mind a specific person you're talking to. What it means is that if no one hears you, even if you're talking to yourself, uttering senseless words, this is, this is idle talk. So it doesn't, no one has to hear you. With all the other ones of speech, someone has to hear it. And they have to understand it, usually. But with this one, you can just be talking to yourself. All you need is the correct perception of what you want to say. <laughs> and then you have to have the affliction, which could be desire, hostility, or ignorance. You have to have the motivation, which is the desire to speak frivolously, and carelessly, to say whatever comes to your mind without any significant meaning or purpose. That sounds kind of familiar. And then the action is to speak, is to actually begin to speak these meaningless words. And then the culmination is when the speech is finished. Once you say the words, that's enough. No one needs to hear it or understand you. The karma is complete. <laughs> oh, and then he goes on to talk about seven kinds of senseless speech. Quarreling, uh, reciting prayers or rituals from things that aren't Buddhist, you know, where you don't have any purpose. But there he also includes reading books that produce stronger afflictions, and novels, and things that make you angry and jealous, because it has no virtuous purpose, essentially. We're trying to keep our three doors in our body, speech, and mind pure or virtuous, so we have to be careful about what we take in. I think this is what Thich Nhat Hanh is so clear about in his precepts. So some things just intensify our obscuring emotions. So then it's useless reading them or exposing ourselves to these things. And then uh, another type of senseless speech is, uh, this was interesting, people who are poor and helpless, bewailing their fate with mourning, wailing and complaining about your circumstances, has no benefit at all. It only stimulates inner emotional turmoil. That kind of reminds me of some of my meditation sessions. (laughs) 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 And then... Playful words spoken only for laughter, for pleasure, for play, or making a joke. 
When you gather together with friends and your conversation has no other purpose than to laugh and to entertain each other, such use of words is senseless. Okay. <laughs> it's going to make us pretty quiet around here. <laughs> Gossiping and exchanging news about politics, kings, presidents, elections, nations, and so forth with no purpose than to pass along stories about what's going on. With this kind of idle talk, you pass around all kinds of useless news from the coming and goings of world leaders down to the activities of thieves and criminals. No purpose other than entertainment and passing the time. This reminds me of reality TV and a lot of the, what news has become. Yeah. You know, news is not so informational anymore, it's entertainment. So I mean, there's a, we need to keep abreast of things, but there's, you can see where it goes overboard. Oh, another sense of speech is when you're drunk or intoxicated and you talk like a mad person. <laughs> Anybody done that lately? No, I don't think so. And then uh, when you pursue wrong livelihood, using your speech to improperly receive money, food, clothes. And actually, all the three prior ones, Sonkapa thinks, you know, the lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, he thinks those are also, could fit in this category. And there's other ones, but I kind of, left it there. So, something for us to think about. Okay, next we're going to go into the weight of karma. So this is useful, because not all of our wholesome and unwholesome actions that we do are equal in terms of the kind of latencies or seeds that they plant in our mind streams, or in the kind of experiences that we're going to result from them. So, Lama Sankapa made these five criteria, which he wrote them in terms of what makes a negative action heavy. But actually, I talked with Venerable Chodron about this because I use this sometimes and for a period of time to set my motivation every morning. These five criteria, because I wanted to make something very strongly virtuous. So, But I'll say it in the way it was presented, which was making negative actions heavy. So the strength of the intention, the strength of the intention is the first thing. And then how the method of doing the action. If we do something repeatedly, it's stronger. If we do it alone, it's stronger rather than with a group. If we rejoice afterwards, if we do a lot of planning and forethought. And how we do it, if we do something in a brutal way, you know, like if you're like killing something, torturing it versus just, you know, slapping a mosquito because, you know, you have this instant reaction. You know, so that's the method of doing the action. And then if there's the lack of an antidote. So this is, you know, when we do something and then we apply antidotes, we're actually, we're, we're, these things aren't set in stone. We're attenuating the results. We're attenuating the effect. That's the word I think I use. Also, um, so we're still on the third point, the lack of an antidote. So applying antidotes, doing constructive actions, purifying, living ethically. So we can really actually use this to our benefit, like really make a motivation strong to do constructive actions, to purify, to apply antidotes. So that's the third point. And then the fourth is doing an action with distorted views, thinking a negative is a positive. This is very fruitful to think about when, you're, when you've done something during the day and then you sit down on the cushion and just ask yourself, was my thinking distorted here? It's not very really hard to see. We can actually, if you just take the time, you can usually see it quite clearly. Venable John Powell and I used to talk about this. 
it didn't take too much to figure out, wow, my mind was distorted then, and I was thinking it was positive, something that wasn't in the moment. It's pretty easy to see. And then for a lot of things. And then the fifth thing is the object, that some things are uh, heavier objects. Our parents, our spiritual teachers and the three jewels, and those who are poor and needy. So actions we do in relationship to these people are much heavier, either to the positive or the negative. Okay, and then the results of karma. So when an action is complete, when all the branches are complete, um, results come about. And what kind of results do we get? There's three results that are described. The ripening result, that's the kind of rebirth we're going to have. The causally concordant result, which there are two, and then the environmental result. So the environmental result is like the environment that we're born into and the different attributes of it. The causally concordant result, that has two. There's one that is the causally concordant experiential result. That's what we experience. We experience what we make other people experience. That's basically what that is. And then the causally concordant behavioral result, that's basically the habit, the tendency to do this action again. So we have these four things when we do a complete action. We're, we're having like a, the projecting karma, the throwing karma that is the type of rebirth. We have what we experience. You know, we experience what we've made other people experience. It's a very useful thought to understand when we're having a bad day. We've done something or some, we think somebody's done something to us. It's just the boomerang coming around. Um, this one about the habit, that's the one that's the most scary. I'll go say why in a moment. And then the environment. So all of these results are actually neutral, except for the habit. They're neutral in the sense that they're not virtuous or, or non-virtuous. They're neutral. And that's because like, even though we might be born in a hell realm when it's quite suffering, suffering, and it was non-virtuous, that non-virtue that got us there, the actual result, suffering is actually neutral. And what the kind of body you take, it, maybe you get it, the kind of body you get from virtuous or non-virtuous causes, but the actual result, the body itself is a neutral phenomenon. So how we react to the suffering, what we do in our life, that's going to create more causes. But the one that is the most scary is the, the habit, this tendency to do the action again, because that one is not neutral. That one is either going to be we're creating virtuous habits or non-virtuous habits. Okay, so I think that's probably... Let's see if we're going to say anything else tonight. Well, one thing that I'd like to just mention is that... Um, hmm, what was that? When Venerable taught in the Essence of Refined Gold, when she explained these things like killing brings a short life and explained the, res- you know, the kind of environment you live in, and she went through the all ten, actually the way she explained those was really, um, you know, sometimes you read these and you think, okay, killing, the environmental result is living in a place with war and strife where food and moat and medicine aren't very potent. And it's sometimes you can make the connection and sometimes you can't. But actually she made all the connections very, very clear. 
So if you want to learn about that, like why, you know, unwise sexual behavior, the environmental is always living in a dirty place with poor sanitation and lots of misery. <laughs> you know, things like that. You know, and even the, the thing of, like, say, lying, if you lie a lot, the kind of things you're going to experience are you're slandered, people deceive you. Some of those are kind of easy to put together, but some of them are a little hard to see. And she explained those really, really clearly. So that's one thing to mention. Okay. The last thing I'll go over, just go over a little bit here, um, some of these things we've learned about before. It's interesting to know. But um, one thing that I think we've had some... Um, it comes up sometimes and it gets kind of confusing, is this thing about what's called certain and uncertain karma. Some actions are certain to produce a result, and others are uncertain in that they're going to—they aren't definitely going to produce a result. So, how is this explained, or how do we understand this? Well, certain things—the things that are certain to make result, to uh, cause results—are things that we do consciously. They're consciously done and accumulated. And the things that are not certain are things that are consciously done but not accumulated. So it's not certain then. So what does that mean? So what does it mean that a karma is done? Well, that's the conscious part of it. You've engaged in something physically or verbally. But then what does it mean when it's accumulated or not accumulated? If it's not accumulated, it means that the karma won't be effective. The seed won't yield a result because it's too weakened or destroyed. And so there won't be any results or there'll just be minor results. And then the ones that are accumulated, these are things that are done with a lot of, with mental attention, with concentration, with strong motivation or repeated, the actions done repeatedly. So then basically all the things, all karma or actions that are accumulated are all the things that are not in these ten. Does this make sense? This is where the, it's like too many negatives. <laughs> Uh, okay, if, you, if you've done an action in your dreams, unknowingly, unconsciously, without intensity or not continuously, if you've done it mistakenly, forgetfully, you know, you just forget, uh, without wanting to, if there are things that are ethically neutral, if you've eradicated it with regret, if you've eradicated it with a remedy, these kind of things where we've, these situations arise, you know, we have so many actions we do. There's a lot of situations that arise. Something in your dreams, these are things that are not accumulated. There's no, you know, things that you do, like like uh, when we step on an ant and we don't know it's there, we have, the ant has died. But it's not something that is necessarily going to be, a, it's not a complete karma. It's not necessarily going to give you a result because it was an accident. There was no, you didn't know, you know. So these, that would be an example of something that's not accumulated. The action was done. It wasn't even so much done knowingly there. So things without conscious intention, like when you just go sit down on a chair. There's no, you know, real big intention there. You're not really creating something. So that's kind of the idea. And I think that's kind of helpful to, to know about because... Kind of confusing, a lot of these things. But there's so much written on all of this, and it really, you know, explains 
so much of our, um, I don't know, I think the more we learn about it, the more we can kind of look at it in the experience of our lives. I think that's the thing that's the most beneficial about all of this, is bringing it back to our experience and just kind of pulling apart what we're doing and then seeing, you know, trying to convince ourselves that there are going to be results. You know, not, you know, I think the appearances are so strong in the moment when we're in the midst of something. I think we're so, the distortions in the mind are so strong that we're really far away from this, this kind of thinking. But I think the more we learn about it and train ourselves, because I see this in Venable Jindi, she's very aware of karma and the functioning of karma in her life. And I think that, as Geshe Sopa said, as we understand this, then we can use this to help to shore up our determination, because this is what we need. We have to make these determinations strongly, because from beginning this time, we've got so many habits, so many propensities that are working against us. If we don't make effort against them, we're just going to be just like it says in the three principal aspects of the path, you know, that... Tight, the strong bonds of karma are so hard to undo, tied up, you know, you're just thrown down the river, you're, you're like bound, gagged, sunk, and... <laughs> so we have to be able to make effort. So to make effort, we have to have some... Um, we won't make effort unless we have some kind of faith or conviction. And we won't have that in some of these things unless we understand them and make sense of them in a reasoned way, because we're not going to see these things. You know, you aren't gonna. We're not gonna see these things. They're gonna happen in other lifetimes. We, some of the things we're experiencing now is like, why did that happen? You know, and so we have to. You know, we have to do this through um, another mode. So. Okay, I'm not leaving time for questions because I won't be able to answer them without research. <laughs> but we could make our list of questions and then we could research them, and that would be fun. Sorry, this was kind of boring. I mean, in the sense of I had to just read my notes. You know, I can't just do this from my head. Okay, thanks for your patience. (laughs) Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.